Well, let me explain a little bit uh, what's going on here today and why my update is up a little bit late. We've been having some issues with our live stream equipment at church, and today the computer system crashed a little bit during Pastor Steve's sermon during the first hour, so I uh, exercised my option to come home and record it. So you'll see, um, if you want to see me, I put myself in a little box in the lower right-hand corner. So today... I'm going to talk about the end of reason. Um, I think that as we look at the things that are going on, I think it's pretty clear that we live at a time where people on so many levels are just not thinking clearly and things are not things are not adding up. Uh, you know, we had the issue with the coronavirus. We had the uh, we now have the issue with the race-related riots and demonstrations and protests. But a lot of what, and I'll talk a little bit today about, a lot of things just don't add up. And it's pretty clear that people aren't thinking things through. Uh, as we talk each week, there is a, a tremendous convergence of events of things that are going on in the world. It seems like it gets more intense each week. As I try to prepare these things, I very often have many, many, many uh, extra hours even of material that I just don't have time to get to. So I try to pick certain highlights and themes. So today I'm going to look about look at uh, a little bit of what's going on with the coronavirus since that still seems to be an issue out there, uh, the effect that it's had on the economy. And then I'll talk about these protests and riots that have been taking place in the United States and really around the world as people try to advance their different agenda with regard to uh, the, the plans that they have. We've been talking the last few weeks about plans, 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 and last week we talked about plandemonium, and it seems that everybody is bringing their, bringing their agenda to the fore. Uh, as this, these covers from Foreign Policy noted a number of years ago, is a very disruptive world. Let me put the remarks that I have today in a little bit of biblical context. Uh, verse, verses that we use, a passage that we use quite a bit, because I think it relates to things that we see going on here in the end times, and I clearly think we are living in the end times. How long all this will take to wrap up uh, or to advance further down the prophetic timeline is anybody's guess at this point. But certainly there are a lot of things going on that are um, coming together. There is, as we've noted, there is a convergence of events. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such turn away." For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead, away, and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to, a knowledge, to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul also writes, For the time will come, he's speaking more specifically about people in the church here, 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. In Second Thessalonians 2, it talks about a yet future time, and for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might all be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so we see these uh, things coming to the fore. In Second Thessalonians chapter 1, we also know, I mean, there are a number of other passages that we could add. We could add Romans 1 and the reprobate mind. We could add in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which talks about the fact that foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Men just can't understand. Uh, that follows closely with Romans chapter 1. God gives them over to a reprobate mind to the point where they just can't reason. And we know that at the end, this all eventually works out for believers. And Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. And that is talked about somewhat in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. To you who are troubled, verse 7, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. It's a passage that I think is often ignored a little bit in Bible prophecy, but I think it's, um, it's as important as all the others. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So just let's take a little bit of a look at what's going on to the uh, with the coronavirus. Now, there's I've noted a number of times that uh, there is this sort of corollary thing that's happening with the coronavirus, and that is that in many areas there has been a uh, a real spike in the number of deaths. There, there are what the literature, what the scientific literature is calling excess deaths. Now, exactly what's causing these excess deaths has not been said, has not been identified or stated or analyzed yet. I think we're going to see a lot of this analysis changing over time. But it's clear that uh, there are, in, like New York City and Stockholm and Italy and some other places, there was a, a, a demonstrable spike in deaths way above what the historical average was over the last few months. Now, it seems to be tailing off some. So some are attributing this to the coronavirus. I think that's part of it. I think in the coronavirus situation, there's been uh, overcounting of coronavirus deaths, but there's probably been, because of the excess deaths and the fact that a lot of these have not been analyzed yet, there's also probably an undercounting. I think it probably balances out in the long run. But uh, one of the other things that they have talked about is they want to achieve herd immunity. Now, I got this from the New York Times upshot section, and I know that you always have to be careful with what you see in the New York Times, but some of the charts and graphs and, and uh, analysis of numbers and that sort of thing, I think they actually do a pretty good job, but you have to understand that they editorialize quite a bit or almost all the time in their articles. But they usually, if you if you read it often enough, you will notice that 
the last number, a few paragraphs in an article usually have fairly solid information. They are a newspaper and they have to at least put out some facts. But again, you have to use a great amount of discernment when reading them. But one of the things that's been talked about with this coronavirus is herd immunity. And what they want to do is they want to get a, a number you know, a certain number of people infected with the virus, create antibodies, and once herd immunity is achieved, then people will be able to move about more freely. This is, again, assuming that the coronavirus is actually a problem, and I personally think that it is, although it's clear that it has not turned out to be what a lot of the people and scientists and prognosticators and all those uh, said their models were wrong. Uh, but for example, they're coming out with new models now. They're saying, well, you know, there's there's going to be a lot more suicides that are going to happen because of economic depression and the lockdowns caused a lot of the economic problems. And the problem with models is that, you know, the, the models that everybody criticized with the coronavirus are also problems with regard to the um uh, excess, the deaths that might occur because of suicide or economic depression or lack of med- medical care there. So it's one of these things that people are going to be uh, examining for a long period of time to figure out exactly what it was that happened. But one of the things, again, that they wanted to find, they wanted to see happen was achieve herd immunity, which means at least 60% of the people had been infected with the coronavirus. So I'm looking at how various cities have done with regard to achieving uh, herd immunity. Um, They've analyzed the data and they found that uh, the percentage of people with antibodies is nowhere near, in almost every city, nowhere near what they think they need to get to achieve herd immunity, meaning that at least 60% of the people have infected and have developed antibodies. Part of the problem here is that uh, because this is a new virus, a novel virus, they have not really developed really good antibody testing yet. Uh, It gives a lot of false positives. So a lot of the data is just not that reliable. But based on at least a good analysis of the data that we can get, the percentage of antibodies of people with antibodies to the coronavirus in New York City as of May 2nd was 19.9%. And that is the highest um, number of people with antibodies to coronavirus of any city that they analyze. You see some of these others. London, as of May 21st, was 17.5%. There's also an interesting article, I don't remember exactly where I saw it this week, that said that uh, the coronavirus may actually not infect about 80% of the people. They're just not going to get infected. So this makes analysis of this data very, very difficult. Uh, Madrid, as of May 13th, had 11.3%. Boston, as of May 15th, had 9.9%. And one of the other cities that they use as an example was Stockholm, which had 7.3%, which is kind of as of May 20, which is kind of interesting because a lot of people have pointed to Stockholm as the gold standard for not engaging in the lockdown Uh, Therefore, they were going to develop herd immunity more quickly. Now, as a practical matter, what happened in Stockholm is what happened a lot of places. People 
did engage in social distancing. They didn't go out as much. The economy has performed pretty poorly in Sweden, uh, really as bad as badly as it has in Finland and Norway and other countries in Europe. Uh, unemployment is up. Businesses are closing. And the other thing that's kind of interesting, and I again, the, the percentage is still very small, but the death rate in Sweden is about twice what it is in the neighboring countries, Denmark, Norway, Finland. So even though they locked down and there's calls for investigation in Sweden about why did we do it this way? Why didn't we do it the other way that everybody else in the world seemed to be doing? So nevertheless, the coronavirus thing is still an issue that's out there. But it's interesting that it's kind of disappeared from the news this week because other things have happened. It's like the world has a collective uh, attention deficit disorder that we can't stay focused on on one thing or we can't focus on multiple things at the same time. We have to move from one thing to another uh, sort of as a herd. So if you want to look for herd activity, uh, you can certainly see that in the media, the way they go from one crisis to the next. They don't really look at things that closely. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that with regard to the economy, the experts had all predicted that there was going to be this massive, uh, there's going to be another spike in unemployment claims. And the jobs report came out on Thursday and lo and behold, Thursday or Friday. And lo and behold, what happened was there were actually about two and a half million jobs added to the U.S. economy in the month of May. This was a big surprise. Because of that, the markets have gone way up. So everybody's excited about the the change in the jobless claims. Now, a couple things to remember about this is I think the situation is probably not as good as uh, the numbers may indicate. I think there are still a lot of fundamental problems out there. People are getting called back to work, but there's it's going to be a very uneven recovery, and I think it's going to take quite a while. Now, I could be totally wrong on this. But uh, some of the other, uh, there's a website that I look at from time to time, time called shadowstats.com or .org. And there they sort of analyze the data, not taking the government, I guess, the government word for it. So, for example, with the unemployment claims, they said, well, unemployment claims are way down. People have returned to the workforce. But when you analyze the, the data, what you find out is that they actually only had about 67% of the states or municipalities or local government agencies that handle this actually submitting reports. So about a third of the reports that they should have got were not, they, they did not get. So that may actually make the numbers look a little bit better than they were. Uh, again, it's one of these things where there's always going to be a bit of a lag in the way these things are reported and analyzed. But I think the economy is still in a very uh, difficult situation. So, for example, you see that uh, in manufacturing, non-manufacturing employment indices or indexes, the the numbers are down. Anything below the number 50 on this chart indicates that the uh, economy and employment is in a contraction. Now, you can see that there's been a little bit of a spike up in the last uh, couple of weeks or the last month. but um, the long-term trend has been a, a pretty dramatic drop here in 2020. <coughs> the trend has been a pretty dramatic drop here 
in 2020. Um, this again is an interesting thing. Remote work could spark a housing boom. Um, there are a number of places in the country where housing prices are up uh, because inventory is very low. People aren't listing their homes, but people are still looking to buy homes because you know when we when we talk about however the whatever the unemployment number is, if it's twenty percent, thirty percent, forty percent, it's still pretty clear that uh, they're you know if they're less than fifty percent that are. Uh, unemployed, then that means that there's more than 50% that are employed. Although there's been adjustment, a lot of people are, um, uh, they have their hours cut back, they're effectively part-time. Uh, when you drill into some of the numbers on the unemployment statistics, you'll find that there's, it's not just people that are filing unemployment claims, there are some people who have just dropped out of the market completely. There are some people that just aren't uh, pursuing it. They're still working part-time, so they're not filing an unemployment claim because they're technically not unemployed. There were a lot of aid packages that were put in place to keep people employed. Those are set to expire in the near term. And so th we don't know exactly what that's going to do with regard to uh, the unemployment statistics. The numbers that I see are that the effective unemployment rate, while it's it's publicly stated as 13.3% now in the United States, that it may be more like 27% to I've even seen as high as 40% when people drill way down into the data and find out what's going on. But there's sort of these interesting anomalies in the, in the, uh, in the economy that while some parts of the economy, the uh, travel industry, the hospitality industry, and those things have just been absolutely devastated. Uh, airlines are in major trouble. Uh, I expect to see a number of them file for bankruptcy that I haven't already filed for bankruptcy. And I see these reports come out about how you have to conduct air travel and how you have to analyze people. And it's, uh, it's sort of like taking a what could already be a somewhat miserable experience traveling by air someplace and making it even worse. I've seen sometimes that you may need to get to the airport four hours ahead of time. So this is this is going to have a big impact. But again, so we, so we have certain industries down, but we have other industries up, food service, industry, retail, grocery, uh, technology, and that sort of thing. It's, it's, and because of the disruption in the supply chain, it can be very difficult to get parts that you need for technology because China is still not fully back up and running and shipping is not operating the same way. So we're going to see a disruption in the economy for some time. And it could get, it could get worse. It could get better. Uh, we'll just have to see how it's going to go. But this is, a, this is a worldwide problem. It's pretty much every country in the world are having these issues with the economy. Uh, another thing to keep in mind, this is an article from, uh, I think, yesterday's or Friday's uh, Wall Street Journal. This bull market isn't as big as you think. Uh, what they did was they went in and they analyzed the data and they said, look, we, um, the most of the, 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 ex the stocks that were expensive before uh, the China shutdown, the oil price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia, and then the effect of the lockdowns all over the world. The stocks that were expensive, overpriced, or highly priced are 
they are the ones that have increased. They are responsible. Uh, so the upper 20% of the stocks are really responsible for almost all of the gains. And it's been kind of an interesting bull market. I mean, things have come back, but the bottom part of the stock market is just being devastated while these others are going up. So you have to look at the full picture. Some companies doing very, very well. Other companies doing very, very poorly. And we don't know exactly how this is going to shake out. Some, like I said, there's always winners in a bad economy, and this is going to be the case. Now, one of the other things that I find kind of interesting is the uh, what are they going to do with colleges in the fall? Uh, college tuition has increased several hundred percent in the United States over the past uh, couple of decades. Uh, I've talked to colleagues. Uh, other attorneys who are sending their children to Ivy League schools and they're paying somewhere around $80,000 a year for tuition, room, and board. That's where they don't get any aid. Uh, even at some state universities, when you're from out of state, your your bills are running in the $40,000, $50,000 range. Um, I saw, I talked to somebody who had a son or daughter who was going into the MBA program at Northwestern and a very well-respected MBA, uh, Masters of Business Administration program. But the cost for that two-year program was $200,000. Uh, so this is, this is a big problem. And so now everybody's looking like, how is this going to shake out? So this is an article from the uh, Nature had one, universities will never be the same after the coronavirus crisis. Similar article in the uh, Wall Street Journal on uh, yesterday, College Inc. faces a price reckoning. Are, are people going to pay for the experience? Listen to what some of what it says in the Wall Street Journal article. As universities face major changes, their financial outlook is becoming dire. Revenues are plummeting as students, particularly international ones, remain home or rethink future plans, and endowment funds implode as stock markets drop. In the Wall Street Journal article, COVID-19 is a major financial blow for their alma maters as dormitories sit empty and incoming freshmen defer, and it won't be a one-year phenomenon. Big tuition checks for classes via Zoom raise questions about the value proposition of a business that takes in over $600 billion a year, equivalent, this is an interesting statistic, so the colleges and universities take in over $600 billion a year equivalent to the combined annual revenue of tech firms Google, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Netflix, and Twitter. That's a pretty big number. College's economic impact is actually even bigger as thousands of private companies from housing to test preparation to food service to textbook pub publishers face a leaner future. He says this, you cannot design a worse business. The pandemic is such that is such an unmitigated disaster for their model. That model has a blow to bureaucracy, expensive sport teams, and fancy gyms and cafeterias built in an arms race to attract students. Combine students deferring due to COVID-19 with the Trump administration's less welcoming stance towards foreign students from places like China, who usually pay full tuition, and it is a perfect storm for the financially weaker colleges. Even before COVID-19 appeared, Almost a third of colleges tracked by Moody's ran deficits and about 11 a year were being forced to close. I would suspect that that number will accelerate. So that's a big part of the economy 
uh, when you look at how they do in terms of revenue compared to the major tech firms combined. Um, very interesting statistic. Now, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the riots and the protests and that sort of thing. <coughs> um, I'm not going to get into whether the police were correct with the way they treated this man who died. I think it's pretty clear that in the case of of Mr. Floyd, that there were clearly mistakes, certainly mistakes, maybe even criminal conduct occurred. But I, one of the things that I'm always concerned about is the truth and also the agendas that people have to uh, push forward when a crisis like this occurs. And we've seen this with the coronavirus crisis, the globalists have rushed in. And now we're seeing with this particular crisis, we are seeing everybody with an agenda and some pretty dark agendas rushing in to fill the space and take advantage of it. One of the things that has been predominant in protest, and I've seen them down here. I live in a suburb of Columbus, Ohio. I've seen students standing on the street corners down here near our high, the, one of the local high schools less than a mile from my house, protesting, shouting, we can't breathe, uh, I demand my rights, don't infringe upon my rights. And I understand that concern, but I I had to kind of chuckle at the one of the young ladies uh, there, you know, I demand my rights to freedom and liberty. And she's standing there yelling this and screaming as, as I'm driving down the street, and she has pink and orange hair. So... Uh, but one of the things that they're shouting and what they're and we'll talk about a little bit more here in a moment is they're talking about defunding the police. This is clearly part of an agenda, a revolutionary agenda that people have. So here's an article from Friday's L.A. Times, LAPD's bedrock budget support erodes. Currently in Los Angeles, the police budget consumes or takes up over 50 percent of the money or the what the money that is spent by the city of Los Angeles. It's a huge number. And now the proposals are there. Uh, here's a little video of Mayor Eric Garcetti announcing what they intend to do with the money. I have instructed and committed to in public to that group that our city through our city administrative officer identify $250 million in cuts so we could invest in jobs, in health, in education, and in healing. And that those dollars need to be focused on our black community here in Los Angeles, as well as communities of color and women and people who have been left behind for too long. And will this involve cuts? Yes, of course, to every department, including the police department, because we all have to be a part of this solution together. And I want you to know that where we are spending, we will be, that as we are spending, excuse me, we will also be making changes and in investments that can lead to structural reform, not just one-off payments for this moment, but a rethinking of how we can build on the successes of the past, but go much further than the present. So tonight I can also announce important changes coming from the commission. 
that this moment demands, calls for, changes that build on our historic reforms at other painful moments, changes that address what we are hearing from you. We will put a moratorium on putting people in the Cal gang database. Now that's an interesting thing. So, so here, Los Angeles, which has a massive gang problem with crime, is that we're going to suspend putting anybody in that database now. Now this goes back, um, reminds me of my graduate school days. I, was, uh, I have a master's degree in criminology. And one of the things I took, I remember the first semester in my graduate program, I had to read a book called Critique of Legal Order by a guy named Quinney. And Quinney's proposition was, look, he was a Marxist. And he said that um, he sort of took, built on some of the things that uh, sociologists had, had made claims about, criminologists had made claims about that. Well, if you label someone as a criminal, then certainly they're going to be a criminal. Uh, Quinney took that and sort of added Marxist thought on top of it, the oppressed masses and that sort of thing. And we need to essentially break down the legal order. Now, I was in graduate school a long time ago, and now what you see is these, these, these Marxists have been at this behind the scenes for decades, for a century or more now, and they've been able to infect this, uh, essentially put this Marxist virus in the education system, and now we're seeing the results of it. So look at here what Gardy City said. They will direct... $250 million from the budget to youth jobs, health initiatives, and peace centers to heal trauma and will allow those who have suffered discrimination to collect damages. And what you see here is that, and as you'll see as I develop this through a couple articles that I really think you should look up and read, that Eric Garcetti is part of the people who are basing all of this on I don't know how else to say it, a big fat lie. I do acknowledge that there are problems. There are police abuses. But just like we're not allowed to say that every protester is a bad person or a Marxist or an Antifa revolutionary, by the same token, people should not be allowed to make the claims that everybody, you know, that anybody who questions these things are are racist or that sort of thing. That's just that's just ridiculous. Garcetti in the article in the LA Times also went on to say, the money will have to be cut from other city operations. Gar Garcetti said as much as $150 million would come from the Los Angeles Police Department. So in the midst of a crisis where lawlessness abounds, Garcetti's proposal is to cu cut money from the police budget. This is part of an, clearly part of an agenda. Some of the active, activist groups pushing hardest for a change called the discussion of reduced police funding and interim victory. Now, listen, look at this one. Black Lives Matter Los Angeles leaders said they would like to see the share of LA's general, Los Angeles's general fund devoted to police reduced from about 50% to 5.7%. It is clear that what they are trying to do is they are trying to collapse the system, defund the police, open the prisons, get people out of prison, stop putting people in the gang database and that sort of thing. This is, this is clearly radical revolutionary Muslim thought that's taking place. Um, said Melina Abdullah, one of the Black Lives Matter leaders, quote, 
City Council and Mayor Garcetti need to know that we're fighting for truly transformative change here and won't be bought off with just this minimal amount of money. So $250 million, as much as $150 million from the police budget alone, is considered by these activists to be minimal money. Uh, this is a problem. And so what you see uh, everywhere, and just like you see in the boycott, divesting, sanction movement with regard to, to Israel and their conflict with the, the Arab states over parts of the land of Israel, the boycott, divest, and sanction, the BDS movement, here you see a t-shirt of this person saying, divest the police. So this is clearly part of their agenda. They want to collapse society and they are taking advantage of the crisis. So look how quickly we went from the coronavirus issue to a complete uh, attempt of people with the agenda to collapse society. I played for you or quoted from you for a couple of weeks ago, the uh, some statements recently in an interview that uh, George Soros had made. Soros is clearly a leftist. He clearly wants open borders and that sort of thing. And Soros said, this is a revolutionary moment. This was a couple weeks ago. In fact, I believe he gave that interview before all of this came up with the George Floyd problem in Minneapolis. And then the the added on race riots and and protests and that sort of thing. So this is this is part of an agenda. Now, in one of the cities that uh, are familiar with with Minneapolis, look at what some of the people in Minneapolis have said. Here's a here's a tweet from Jeremiah Ellison. Jeremiah Ellison is the son of Keith Ellison. Keith Ellison was a congressman. He is currently the Attorney General of the state of Minnesota. And here is what his son says, who is a member of the Minneapolis City Council. We are going to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. And when we're done, we're not simply going to glue it back together. We are going to dramatically rethink how we approach public safety and emergency response. It's really past due. So this is, this is part of the agenda. Uh, in fact, this is this is a case where the apple did not fall far from the tree. Here is Keith Ellison from a couple of years ago. This tweet has been deleted, but it's it's interesting that this is one of the tweets that Snopes actually gets right because Keith Ellison actually tweeted this when he was in a bookstore and to Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook, and with the tweet at Moon Palace Books, and I just found the book that will strike fear in the heart of real Donald Trump. So this is clearly part of an agenda. And Keith Ellison, there's a video out there, I didn't have time to put it into today's presentation or talk, where he, uh, there's a press release back in early May where he's talking about how great CARE is, C-A-I-R. And so clearly he's, he's the chief law enforcement officer of the state of Minnesota. How do you think all of this is going to go? I see other places where these there was a, a project put together by George Soros where they tried to put left-wing prosecutors in place, one of whom was uh, Kim Gardner in St. Louis, Missouri. 
And she is essentially saying, listen, you were arrested for anything related to the riot, looting, that type of thing. You're being released. Now, I have I seriously question whether she's going to back going to go back and refile charges at any time. So this is where we're going. Lisa Bender, another member of the Minneapolis City Council, said this. Yes, we are going to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department and replace it with a transformative new model of public safety. And there again is that Marxist term, transformative transformation. They are trying to completely use this crisis, this in great part manufactured crisis, to create, uh, to transform public safety, essentially divest, defund, get rid of the police. So instead of uh, somebody calls the police, they have a problem, they will send out a social worker instead. Uh, because of course you need a social worker when there's a case of domestic violence. I would highly recommend if you want to dig or drill into this a little bit more deeply, a uh, blog uh, that is maintained by a gentleman named Stephen Coughlin. Um, he has done a lot of work on counterterrorism and that type of thing. Uh, I caught an interview with him the other day on Frank Gaffney's Secure Freedom Radio. I would highly recommend that you go to the Secure Freedom podcast and listen to the interview with him. But he has one of the articles that he has on his website, and he has many very well done articles uh, and analyses, is when does a state become a counter state? Uh, for example, here is what he says in the introduction. As this assessment was about to release, an African-American man died at the hands of the Minneapolis police. So he was already um, looking at writing, or he was already preparing this article on Minnesota becoming a counter state because they have, they have a care supporter, a radical leftist as the attorney general, uh, the mayor of Minneapolis, the city council. You can see this from the example of them wanting to defund the, defund the police, uh, get rid of the police. You have uh, the mayor of Minnesota or the governor of Minnesota, who is also a radical leftist. So this has been going on for a long time. So this is what he says. So as this assessment was about to be released, an African-American man died at the hands of the Minneapolis police. The police officer's actions should be investigated. There should be a trial and justice should take its course. That said, the police killing an African-American in Minneapolis is severable from its political warfare exploitation, which was spring-loaded, ready, and on time. This article remains on point in warning that Minnesota has become a central neo-Marxist Islamic movement united front, actively posturing in advance of this election cycle. As warning on racism warned, this is an article that he wrote, the political warfare preparation of the information environment made such an event somewhere, it made such an event somewhere probable. As may have further developed at a later time from political warfare perspective, a number of resisting arrest and related contentious racism events have been on the rise as the COVID narratives exhaust themselves. It's just a matter of numbers that at some point such activity will lead to an overreaction by law enforcement that can then be used to jumpstart the movement leading into the summer. As the political season heats up, this means Antifa 
Black Lives Matters, Muslim Brotherhood street groups will be given broader latitude, while the Minnesota AG will be under-responsive to the line to mass line street violence from the left, thus putting law enforcement in a highly defensive posture. The killing of Mr. Floyd was a tragedy. The spring-loaded narratives that followed were pre-packaged and are aimed at delegitimizing law enforcement in advance of a period of violence. From months before the Minneapolis event, an action like this was foreseeable, was foreseen, and is, as is already occurring, designed to go national. So this is a, I really think you need to read this article, and that's at the Unconstrained Analytics blog, unconstrainedanalytics.org, and you can find the article, Requiem for Minnesota, When Does a State Become a Counterstate? This is a very, a very, very serious issue. In response to the defund the police, I thought this was an interesting comment um, that somebody made to Jeremiah Ellison. I've heard of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. This sounds like throwing out the baby, the bathtub, the bathroom, the apartment building, and five generations of the baby's ancestors with the bathwater. But hey, good luck. I'm a thousand miles away. Let me know how it goes. But unfortunately, a thousand miles away from this agenda is not far enough. We are in a very serious issue. And here is yet, here is Ilan Omar, the uh, shining light of the leftist uh, Muslim Brotherhood Congress person from Minneapolis. And she says this, the Minneapolis Police Department has proven themselves beyond reform. It's time to disband them and reimagine public safety in Minneapolis. This is this is an agenda. She was writing in response to this article in Time Magazine. I'm a Minneapolis City Council member. We must disband the police. Here's what could come next. And this is happening on many levels. For example, here is a um, town hall that took place the other day, reimagining policing in the wake of continued police violence. Panelists, Brittany Packett Cunningham, Philippe Cunningham, City Council Representative, Ward 4, City of Minneapolis, Eric Holder, former Attorney General in the Obama administration, Rashad Robinson, President, Color of Change. So listen, this, this is just like we saw the World Economic Forum and the globalists move in when the coronavirus crisis happened to advance their agendas. Here we have the Marxists from Obama, Keith Ellison, Eric Holder, the leftists coming in to take advantage of this crisis. Now, part of this is a longer agenda. This is a Nicole, um, Nicole Hara-Jones. She is a, uh, I think, a professor, author, writer. I'm sorry, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Uh, back last summer, and I talked about this before, the New York Times Magazine published a thing called the 1619 Project. And here's what it says. This is what it said on the cover of the magazine. I think this was published in August of 2019. Uh, because this was the 400th anniversary. That was the 400th anniversary of the first slave ship. It says this in August of, of 1619. A ship appeared on this horizon near Point Comfort, a coastal port in the British colony of Virginia. It carried uh, more than 20 
enslaved Africans. They were actually indentured servants, like many people who came to America who were indentured servants, who were told the colonists, uh, the col- who were sold to the colonists. America was not yet America, but this was the this was the moment it began. So what you see here is what Nicole Hannah-Jones and her 1619 project came up with this thing to rewrite history. It said everything about America was racist in its origin. It was only to support slavery and on and on and on. And this is the narrative that has been pushed. It was it was pushed before August of 2019. But it's certainly been pushed in great part since then. So they have this 1619 project. Uh, Here's what it says. Our founding ideals of liberty and equality were false when they were written. Black Americans fought to make them true. Without this struggle, America would have no democracy at all. So what you see here is you see her rewriting history. And so what you're going to see in this interview that she did, this is a clip of an interview from, or that she did the other day with, uh, Christian Amapur about the violence that's going on and the looting going on. I want you to listen carefully to what she says about looting. I will say we have not seen uh, this level, this number of uprisings across American cities for the sustained period of time, probably since the uh, mid to late 1960s. So um, we are in an era a moment where there is potential for great structural reform, but uh, it's, it's left to be seen whether that actually occurs. Ultimately, our protest is only as successful as we can convince white Americans to actually comply with the Constitution and treat uh, black Americans as full citizens. I, I think I would not describe looting as violence. Looting. Uh, is property damage, but it is not violence. And I would actually like to go to Martin Luther King's own words. He uh, wrote a letter to the American Psychological Association in September of 1967. And what he said is that looting uh, comes from the most enraged and deprived Negro and allows them to take hold of consumer goods with the ease that a white man does by using his purse. Often the Negro does not even want what he takes. He wants the experience of taking Negroes have committed crimes, but they are the derivative crimes and they are born of the greater crimes of the white society. So when we ask Negroes to abide by the law, let us also demand that the white man abide by the law in the ghettos as well. So I think we need to have some perspective on what exactly we're seeing when we call that violence and looting. So essentially what she says is that looting is not violence. Now you saw the images there that I put in. This That was a clip from, um, I believe, Channel 5 in Seattle, showing the violence, clearly violence that was going on in the street. And so what she has done, this this supposed scholar has done, is to um, reinvent history. So there are many things that are violence that they're now saying is not violence. Now, here's an image or a little video, uh, something that happened in Mexico but it's the same mindset that's involved. So I don't want to hear any complaints that, oh, well, that's not even the USA. That's just Mexico. But I want you to see the mindset behind what is going on. Here's a policeman having a confrontation with a protester in Mexico.
So now, granted, that's Mexico, but this is the mindset that's going on in these protests. And when you encounter these people, I saw them in downtown Columbus yesterday. These people have a violence about them. They want to completely collapse society and put in their Marxist agenda. Now, nor, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones um, is being held up as this great scholar that led to the 1619 Project. When it first came out, it essentially said everyone who was ever involved in the creation of America or the Constitution were all racist. About seven months after publishing, publishing it, the New York Times is getting tremendous pushback from historians on all sides of the issue, particularly even on the leftist. A leftist professors were pushing back saying this is historical nonsense. It's not to be believed. So what they did was they uh, revised the report and they said, well, some of the people involved were racist. Now, but you, you've seen what Hannah, or excuse, excuse me, Nicole Hannah-Jones says about this. She clearly has an agenda. She is mischaracterizing facts. Her, her research on 1619 Project was incorrect. And I'm going to show you that she gave a very truncated, truncated quote of Martin Luther King's September 1st, 1967 speech to the American Psychological Association. You can find it online, the transcript of it. It's in many, many different places. Just Google it. Uh, September 1st. 1967, Washington Hilton Hotel, Martin Luther King speaking to the American Psychological Association. What this lady did was she took part of that quote and then she said, see, Martin Luther King agrees with me. Looting is not violence. This person is not credible, but she has an agenda. She's trying to collapse society. I'm going to show you what she's doing with this, but here's a... a image of the transcript of his speech. And here is exactly what Martin Luther King, I'm going to show you where she stopped quoting. So um, here's what he says. Often the Negro does not, this is Martin Luther King, often the Negro does not even want what he takes. He wants the experience of taking. That is where she stopped quoting. Here is what happened. Negroes have committed crimes, but they are derivative crimes. They are born of the greater crimes of white society. Often the Negro does not even want what he takes. He wants the experience of taking, but most of all, alienated from society and knowing that this society cherishes property ab above people, he is shocking it by abusing property rights. There are thus elements of emotional catharsis in the violent act. Martin Luther King himself admitted that looting and rioting was a violent act. And this lady is a liar when she says that it was not. This is Martin Luther King. A profound judgment of today's riots was expressed by Victor Hugo a century ago. He said, if a soul is left in the darkness, sins will be committed. The guilty one is not he who commits the sin, but he who causes the darkness. The policymakers of the white society have caused the darkness, they created discrimination, they structured slums, and they perpetuate unemployment, ignorance, and poverty. It is un incontestable and deplorable that, and then this is where Nicole Hannah-Jones actually, so she jumped from this uh, taking all the way over to Negroes have committed crimes, but they are derivative crimes. So what they did with the 1619 project was they took it, 
And you see here, this is from the New York Times publication in August 2019, the 1619 Project in School. So they, they came up with a curriculum and instruction to uh, put this narrative, this, this frankly false Marxist recreating history narrative out there. And they wanted to put it into schools, the 1619 Project. Listen, this whole this thing has led to a lot of things coming to the surface. For example, you, you can see what their agenda is with regard to religion. In fact, here's one tweet that I thought was interesting from a Twitter account called The Tweet of God. Privilege doesn't get much wider than making a Roman-era Palestinian look like this. Now, Jesus was not a Palestinian. He was a he was from the tribe of Judah. He was born in Bethlehem. He was not a Palestinian. But you see these narratives that are coming to the fore. You see these restrictions coming in all sorts of areas. For example, here is a young lady. Uh, I can't remember her name right off the top of my head. Uh, she is a, a German, very articulate. Uh, she was at CPAC last summer or earlier this year talking about climate change. She's she's called the anti-Greta. She, she believes that the climate change stuff is a bunch of nonsense. She is essentially in Europe, in Germany. She is being brought up on charges and she's being threatened with prison time because she doesn't adopt the narrative of climate change. So you see all these things kind of converging. So as the coronavirus came up, people are pushing climate change. I'm not sure how coronavirus relates to climate change, but they're using it to further their agenda. Um, now they're using it to push this Marxism out into the public. The World Economic Forum, incidentally, uh, they have a part of their strategic intelligence website. They have this LGBTI inclusion part of their... And you can see it. This is uh, on their strategic intelligence. You may have to sign. I think you have to register to get to this part. But you see LGBT inclusion, and then they have articles here. And then look at what they have here. Economic impact of LGBTI exclusion. Evidence suggests that countries with the most restrictive laws forfeit significant amounts of GDP. And now they're also relating it to how this relates to the uh, response to the coronavirus crisis. Um, look here, the one article that they have, The Great Reset, Why LGBTI plus or LGBT plus inclusion is the secret to cities post-pandemic success. And so what you see is these, these narratives that they're trying to push to make things uh, come together. This was a Washington Post editorial the other day. Shut down all police movies and TV shows now because these TV shows like that we used to watch when I was a kid, uh, Dragnet, Adam 12, um, you know, the, all the police, police story, they portrayed policemen in a positive light. So we have to get rid of them because, of course, people can't see the police are ever portrayed in a positive light. And we're going to defund them anyway. And this is kind of an interesting um, juxtaposition. Black Lives Matter. You see the cop kneeling with supremacy, black, Palestinian, and native. And then this was an editorial that appeared in one of the Arab publications. Um, and so what you see here is you have the police, the American police on one side, oppressing black people as racist. 
and you have an Israeli soldier kneeling on the neck of a Palestinian, the Palestinian Khalifa there. So it's clear that there is this agenda that's there. Now listen, my opinion is that uh, there are two articles you need to go read. Heather McDonald wrote in the Washington or the uh, Wall Street Journal on Wednesday, June third, the myth of systemic police racism, and she also has another article out called "Darkness Falls" about the collapse of the rule of law, not just in America but in the world. Here's what she says. Listen to some of these. These she is an excellent writer. Um, I highly recommend her work. She has analyzed police statistics and what's going on. She says this, Savagery is spreading with lightning speed across the United States with murderous assaults on police officers and civilians and the ecstatic annihilation of businesses and symbols of the state. Welcome to the real civilization-destroying pandemic, one that makes the recent saccharine exhortations to stay safe in the deployment of police officers to enforce outdoor mask wearing seem like decadent bag. On the night of, she talks about the what happened with the uh, response to the George Floyd, George I'm sorry George Floyd, um, killing. Uh, on the night of Thursday, May 5th, Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry ordered the city's third police precinct evacuated as the forces of hatred, distinct from legitimate forms of protest, descended upon it for a third day in a row. The building was proper, promptly torched, sending a powerful sign that society would not defend its most fundamental institutions of law and order. On Friday, May 29th, Minnesota Governor Tim Walz explained that his reluctance to mobilize the National Guard as an unwillingness to seem oppressive. Naturally, he apologized for his white privilege. I will not patronize you as a white man without living your lived experiences and explained that the feral violence as an understandable response to racial injustice. Uh, quote, the ashes are symbolic of decades and generations of pain, of anguish, unheard. Few arrests were made after five days of rampant crime. This is what um, this is what is happening. Highly recommended. Here is a little clip of an interview that uh, Heather gave the other night on Tucker Carlson. Are African Americans being hunted? as Joy Reid recklessly claimed on MSNBC recently? Or is something else happening? Is our nation being ripped apart by a total and complete lie, a provable lie, a lie used by cynical media manipulators and unscrupulous politicians who understand that racial strife, race hatred, is their path to power, even if it destroys the country? You have the facts now, and you can decide what's really going on. Heather McDonald is the author of the book, The War on Cops. She joins us tonight. Heather, you wrote a book on this, and because so much is at stake, and because people have died and are dying, and the country's being ripped apart, we want to be sure that we have these numbers right. And so we bow to you, someone, again, who just wrote a book on this, are the numbers that we just read correct? And what do you make of them, if so? Absolutely, they're correct, Tucker. Uh, this is a narrative that is both false and dangerous. In 2015 and 2016, uh, when we went through what now is, in retrospect, a, a minimal amount of, of civil unrest and, and riots throughout the country, 
2,000 additional black males were killed because cops backed off of policing. Right now, we already have seen crime going through the roof. We've already seen the assassinations of cops. I fear we're going to see more. And who are the people who are going to be hurt when these cops back off? If we defund the cops, we don't even need to defund them. The delegitimation of them is so great. The hatred that is being directed at them when they arrest gun gangbangers, gun toters, people who have just shot innocent children in the city, the hatred being directed at officers is extraordinary. Who's going to be hurt? The thousands of law-abiding residents of inner-city neighborhoods who beg for more police protection. People like a cancer amputee in the Mount Hope section of the Bronx who told me, please, Jesus, send more police, because the only time she feels safe to go into her building lobby is when the cops are there, because it's otherwise colonized by trespassing youth, selling drugs, and smoking weed. There was an elderly lady in the 41st precinct of the, of the South Bronx who stood up in the middle of a community meeting and said, how lovely when we see the police. They are my friends. These are the voices that the media deliberately silences because they completely undermine their phony narrative about systemic police racism and white supremacy in this country. I mean, phony doesn't begin to scratch the surface, I would say. So we are being told by demagogues on television, demagogues in office, office holders, people who run the country are telling us genocide is occurring. There is a never ending wave of racist attacks on African-Americans by police officers in which many are dying. We came up with 10 in 2019. How can they say something like that when there are no facts to support it? And the irony is it's the Washington Post's own database that collects the unarmed statistics. As you say, Tucker, unarmed being defined extraordinarily broadly, but the Washington Post doesn't write that. Uh, here's another interesting fact. A police officer is 18 and a half times more likely to be murdered by a black male than an unarmed black male is to be murdered by a cop uh, or killed by a cop. Uh, so there are so many facts about crime, about policing, we should not racially profile blacks for the for, for sure. any crime rates. We should also not racially profile cops uh, for one absolutely horrific arrest. The cops desperately want more tactical training. They want more help in de-escalating and controlling stress. Yeah. Uh, but they are not systemically biased. We we need to decelerate the de-escalate the rhetoric here because this is this is actually threatening the country. We're teetering at this point. Heather, great to see you. Thanks so much. It's not the country. It's civilization. Civilization itself is now at risk. With, I agree with that. Thank you. Well, that's an excellent interview. Um, and this is a part of her follow-up in her article, uh, citing a, a, a report um, from the uh, U.S. Department of Justice, race and Hispanic origin of victims and offenders. Uh, from 2012 to 2015, uh, crime statistics. And what you see is you see that in this, um, well, here's what it says. The pandemic of civil violence is more widespread than anything seen during the Black Lives Matters movement uh, of the Obama years. And it will likely have an even deadlier toll on law enforcement officers than the targeted assassinations we saw from 2014 onward. Heather says it's worse this time because the country has absorbed another five years of academically inspired racial victimology. Um, from not, from Tennessee Coates to the New York Times 1619 Project, the constant narrative about America's endemic 
white supremacy and its deliberate destruction of the black body has been thoroughly injected into the political bloodstream. Facts don't matter to the academic victimology narrative. Far from destroying that the black body, whites are the overwhelming target of interracial violence. This is from the, st- the statistics that you see on the screen. Between 2012 and 2015, blacks committed 85.5% of all black-white interracial violent victimizations, excluding interracial homicide, which is also disproportionately black-on-white, that works out to 540,000 felonious assaults on whites. Whites committed 14.4% of all interracial violent, interracial violent victimization or 91,000 felonious assaults on blacks. Blacks are less than 13% of the national population. If white mobs were rampaging through black business districts, assaulting passerby and looting stores, we would have heard about it on the national news every night. But the black flash mob phenomenon is as grudgingly covered, if at all, and only locally. And she goes on and she she cites these statistics. Um, she also, in her article in the Wall Street Journal, The Myth of Systemic Police Racism, she says that this is just simply wrong. This is, this is made up nonsense. It's a lie. And uh, you can, I would highly recommend that you get her article and read that. And she cites in their report, officer characteristics and racial disparities and fatal officer involved shootings. Uh, this is from the August uh, 2019 of uh, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The researchers found that more frequently, uh, that the more frequently officers encounter violent suspects from any given racial group, the greater the chance that a member of that group will be fatally shot by a police officer. There is no significant evidence of anti-black disparity and the likelihood of being fatally shot by police the study concluded, and this is absolutely true. This is all premised on a lie. It's an agenda to collapse society, to advance this neo-Marxist nonsense that Obama was pushing during his years in office, and it really needs to stop. I have said that uh, many times that I think the Red-Green Alliance, the leftist, communist, uh, Islamic alliance is part of this whole end time scenario. Now I'm going to show you some additional things that you need to know about. For example, here is a, a report that came from, uh, this is online at revolutionaryabolition.org, burn down the American plantation. Here's a several minute video that they have up on their website. seeking freedom, to those committed to abolishing slavery, to those who want liberation for all, we announce the formation of the Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement. The United States was built on slavery, and despite the American Civil War, this oppression never ended. 
The abolitionist movement fought against this tyranny, but modern slavery and mass brutality persist unchecked. Fascism is on the rise. The state has openly declared war on our communities, threatened to ethnically cleanse Latinos, criminalize Muslims, destroy indigenous land, and oppress the LGBTQ community, while continuing to murder and incarcerate black people. The revolutionary abolitionist movement unequivocally states that the plantation system must be destroyed. Today, the anarchist struggle and anti-state feminism are flourishing, and authoritarian modes of resistance are now discredited. The revolution in Rojava, in northern Syria, has set a new standard. With a foundation in feminism, ecology, anti-state organizing, and armed struggle, it has actualized a path towards liberation beyond 20th century nationalism. With the founding of groups like the International Revolutionary People's Guerrilla Forces, it is clear that this is the time for anarchist revolutionaries to act without hesitation. We declare our solidarity with the international anti-fascist and anarchist struggle and propose concrete steps in the fight for abolition. Revolutionary abolitionists must fight hand-in-hand hand with those facing oppression. We intend to establish a new underground railroad to free people from bondage. By building revolutionary self-defense networks, connecting them to one another, and developing militant strategies in our neighborhoods, our network will create the capacity to destroy state power and defend our communities. A new global paradigm for revolution has been established to be taken up by dedicated revolutionaries, autonomous territories, guerrillas in armed struggle, and all those engaged in the global drive towards liberation and away from statehood, capitalism, patriarchy, and domination. We call on anti-state revolutionary groups to join the revolutionary abolitionist movement and send this message to our comrades to help build the capacity to burn down the American plantation once and for all. Long, their political vision, self-defense, the heart of revolutionary transformation, prim primary unit of self-governance, the neighborhood council, conflict resolution and revolutionary justice, towards the abolition of gender, ownership through use, the cooperative economy, and expropriation. They want to completely do away with private property. Here is the basic focus of our struggle. This is from the publication, uh, Burn Down the American Plantation, or Burn the American Plantation Down. The basic focus of our struggle, the abolition of struggle, must, must take up the immediate fight to abolish prisons, courts, and ICE detention facilities. As abolitionists, we must fight unequivocally with black, Latino, native, Muslim people, and all those subjected to prison society and white supremacy. This struggle must be feminist and predicated on queer and trans liberation. Do you see where all these things that I've been talking about over the last few years, they're all sort of coal, coalesced and, and converge in this document. 
the abolitionist struggle must fight for decentralized commune-based political organization and stand resolutely against capitalism in the state. The struggle must be oriented towards militant self-defense and devise specific plans for offensive actions against reactionary forces. The abolitionist's long-term goal is to get rid of the justice system, the nation state, and the capitalist economy. This is this is anarchy, this is communism, this is Marxism. Uh, at the same time, you see these articles about politicians are shuttering churches and synagogue, but then they can't tolerate riots. Somebody posted this on Twitter, this video of a demonstration saying, hey, what about all the social distancing things that we wanted to have with regard to protecting people against the coronavirus? There is an inherent racism against about this. This is a picture I found on one of the websites. And what do you see there? All we have to do is stand up and their little game is over. Well, who are the people that are sitting there playing this board game with money, essentially monopoly of the world? They're Jews. So this this is anti-Semitic hatred on steroids. And this is where a lot of this ends up. Caroline Glick has a very excellent article that I think you should also read at Israel Hayom this week. It's titled, uh, The Great Threat to America and to American Jewry. She goes in and she looks at an article from the tablet about bending the Jews, bend the ark. It's a uh, organization that's set up to essentially um, get rid of Jewish identity. Uh, these are Jewish people that are doing this. Uh, as the article notes here, deep-pocketed funders, including the Rockefellers and the Buffets, are creating a constellation of activist groups like Stosh Coulter's Ben the Ark that aim to rewire American Jewish life. And when you read through the article, it's, it's very troubling because essentially they want to uh, collapse American Jewry. Here's Ben the Ark. Look at what it says. We are made for this moment. This is leftism that's coming into this Jewish action network, be part of the Jewish resistance. Bend the Ark is a movement of tens of thousands of progressive Jews all across the country. For years, we've worked to build a more just society. Now we're rising up in solidarity with everyone to get with everyone threatened by the Trump agenda to fight for the soul of our nation. Caroline in her article makes a uh, an interesting point, but the Jews' progressive desire to work on behalf of those demonstrating for African Americans places their political identity on a collision course with their Jewish identity. Black Lives Matter, the radical group leading the demonstrations, is an anti-Semitic organization. BLM was formed in 2014 as a merger of activists from the anti-Semitic Nation of Islam, the anti-Semitic Black Panthers, and Dreamcatchers. In 2016, BLM published a platform that it has since removed from its website. The platform accused Israel of committing a genocide and referred to the Jewish state as an apartheid state. The platform accused Israel and its supporters of pushing the U.S. into wars in the Middle East. The platform also officially joined BLM with the anti-Semitic BDS campaign to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel. BDS campaign leader Omar Barghouti acknowledged this week that the goal of the BDS campaign is to destroy Israel. BDS campaigns on U.S. campuses are characterized by bigotry and discrimination directed against Jewish students. She then uh, refers back to this tablet article uh, regarding Bend the Ark. Uh, Last week, 
uh, tablet published a 20,000 word essay titled Bend the Jews on Bend the Ark, the flagship organization spawned by those efforts. To achieve its goal, referring to Bend the Ark, to achieve its goal of reshaping the worldviews of American Jews, among other things, Bend the Ark trains conservative reform and reconstruction as rabbinical students. It also pays the salaries of associate rabbis in various communities. With many synagogues long steeped in financial crisis due to, the dwindling, due to dwindling membership, Bend the Ark's ability to pay rabbis makes its involvement with synagogue hiring an attractive option for many communities. This is doubly true for synagogues whose members are, whose members are progressive. As progressive politics paralyze Jews from acting against anti-Semites in their political camp, levels of anti-Semitic sentiment among white progressives are rising. As Goldberg, the author of the tablet piece, reported, as white progressives become radicalized on issues related to minorities and immigration, they also turned against Israel. Today, why, today, while, today, white progressives are hostile to Israel, and Goldberg argued that they express, while they express support for their for Jews, their sympathy toward and concern for Jews has become more conditional. Uh, it's an excellent article. You should um, read it. She concludes with this paragraph, whether Trump wins or loses in November, the radicalization of white progressives at the heart of the mayhem represents the greatest short and long-term threat to social cohesion in America. It also represents the greatest threat to the communal front future of American Jewry, to relations between the American Jewish community and the rest of the Jewish world, and to U.S.-Israel relations. And again, all of this is designed to collapse the system in on itself. Just a few more things, and we'll, I'll finish up here quickly. I may do a midweek update if I have time. Uh, one of the things that's uh, at issue or that's going on is that uh, the Palestinians, of course, are objecting to the Trump plan. There's been announcements that around July 1st, Israel will annex parts of the Jordan Valley and Judea and Samaria. Uh, Abbas has been screaming that this is not fair, and essentially what he did was he came out last week at a meeting and terminated all agreements between the Palestinian Authority and Israel. Uh, this is because they don't like the map. They'll never agree to anything. Uh, this is all part of the Trump plan. I still have my concerns about the Trump plan because it does if accepted, divide up the land of Israel, which I don't think is a good thing to be involved with. Uh, there have been a number of, there were some surveys that were done. Uh, for example, there's there's been uh, effectively a cyber war that has been taking place between Israel and Iran. Um, it has gotten pretty serious. This is an article from uh, foreign policy. This is the way. Maybe this is the way that a lot of future wars are going to be fought: is cyber warfare. But uh, so here's a survey. They talked about which side Israel or Iran has a better chance to prevail over the other in the cyber struggle between them. Um, this is a percentage of the entire public. Three percent says Iran has a better chance. Um, nine, uh, eleven percent don't know, or sorry, fifteen percent don't know. 11% say neither side, and 71% say that Israel has the better chance. Uh, with regard to the annexation and applying sovereignty over the Jordan Valley and parts of Judea and Samaria, uh, I think there's an excellent video that you should watch. You should go to jcpa.org, the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, jcpa.org, and watch 
the most recent interview that or video that Dor Gold did. Dor Gold is a former ambassador to the U.S. And in the video, he makes a good point that with the San Remo conference of 100 years ago, this land was essentially given to Israel. So how can Israel be annexing its own land? It's a very interesting video. And we are in a situation where the only world agreement has ever been was the San Remo agreement, which gave all of this area to um, the Jewish people. But then that was... Uh, hacked away at over the ensuing years. But the 1920 conference in San Remo is the only one that really recognized that. And Dorgold does a very good job in that video and a couple others that are available at jcpa.org of laying out these out. I won't take time to play them now. So the question in this survey was, should Israel go ahead with applying sovereignty, even if the United States does not support the move? And this is, again, of the Jewish public. 30% oppose the annexation. 25% um, support annexation. Uh, another 25%, which makes half of the people, support the annexation. 25% of the people, or half of the half that support it, say that it's regardless of what the US, whether the U.S. supports annexation or not, they should go ahead. The other 25% support annexation only with the approval of the U.S. and don't know, and, and those who don't know what they should do, Israel should do about annexation, constitute 20% 20, 20%. So half either oppose or don't know, the other half support. And then you can see how this uh, breaks down along the different party lines of the members of the Knesset. Another interesting thing is, in your opinion, the survey, what are the chances that the Palestinians will react to the application of Israeli sovereignty to the Jordan Valley and parts of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank with a large-scale Third Intifada? 77% uh, of the left think that will happen, 64% of the center, and 55% of the right. So the majority of people in Israel think that there will be another Intifada. Uh, there's also an interesting article in the Jerusalem Post on... Uh, either Friday or Sunday, uh, talking about what they view as Russia's uh, crawling maritime annexation, uh, that they have a significant interest in the gas reserves of people in the Middle East. And part of this is that Russia wants to, one, project power. They want to look like they're significant. They want to have a rationale for their Navy being there. They have the bases, the, the naval base, in, at TARDIS in, in Syria. And so they are taking an interest in trying to get contracts to handle the gas that's coming out of the Eastern Mediterranean. Part of that is also to act as a check on Turkey, which is also trying to exercise its influence in the Eastern Mediterranean. The interesting thing is that um, the amount of gas that is really involved is uh, relatively insignificant in Russia's market share, but Russia wants to protect its market share at all costs. Um, Turkey also is uh, involved. They've become, I think, a pretty open enemy of the United States. For example, here they say that Antifa and the YPG, PKK of the Kurds, share the same ideological ground for terrorism. They're trying to 
join the two together and say, well, look at the United States. They're getting hammered in their cities by Antifa, but they support the same kind of terrorists uh, among the Kurds. And again, the Turks really want to, if they could, they would eliminate the Kurdish problem at any cost. Another thing Turkey is involved in is Turkey is also involved in uh, putting itself into Palestinian territories, the Palestinian areas. They've opened a new Islamic center near the Western Wall at, at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, and this is, you, you will see uh, images of some of these Palestinian villages where they are flying a lot of, they're flying Turkish flags along with the Palestinian flag. That's because Turkey has, uh, its design, uh, the designs of Erdogan is to become a new caliph or caliphate. Turkey is also involved in Libya. Uh, the Russian-backed uh, General Haftar uh, insurgency has not been doing well. They lost whatever in, uh, cities they had in the western part of Libya. Western part of Libya is the UN and Turkish-backed uh, or uh, government that's officially recognized by the UN. But the whole situation, it's really become Lebanon, I'm sorry, Libya has become the giant proxy war of the Middle East. And this, of course, I think is significant from a Bible prophecy standpoint, because we know that put Libya, modern day Libya, is involved in the coalition that comes against Israel in the last days. And finally, there is this um, uh, locust infestation that's spreading from the Horn of Africa through the Southern Arabian Peninsula into Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and uh, becoming a big problem that's attacking a lot of crops. And you can see what's happened over the first three weeks of May as the weather, uh, they think that there's going to be even greater infestation in the future. And again, this is, I can't say this is specifically Bible prophecy, but it certainly is an interesting thing. So listen, we live in a world where um, they are trying to collapse the systems. They are trying to install a global government. They're trying to get rid of the nation state. They're trying to get rid of borders. I think this is a very significant development for Bible prophecy. So I appreciate you listening. I apologize for the late uh, lateness in getting this up. As again, we had a computer crash and had to rebuild it at uh, church today. And I came home and because of some other obligations, I've just been able to get this up. So God bless. And we will talk to you again, maybe in the middle of the week or certainly next Sunday.